Hey, welcome to this edition of the John Papaloni Show. Today we have Pete Senna. Pete, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Absolute pleasure. Let's start off the podcast with a little bit about you of who you are, what you do, and how you got there. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for having me on and everybody tuning in. Appreciate y'all. So my name is Pete Senna. I am a designer technology nerd and have been for my whole life. Uh, started writing code when I was like, I don't know, 12, 13 years old and just had a fascination with the internet. I just love making things. I love taking things apart and just solving puzzles. And, you know, when I say puzzles, I mean, you know, design puzzles, tech puzzles, that sort of thing. So that's just a little bit about me. And I'd say like, I'm a big believer in following your passion and following the threads that comes up. And for me, you know, following my passion, you know, ended up me starting a career in sports marketing, which I thought was going to go a very different direction than it did. And then I found myself really getting obsessed with branding and really getting obsessed with how do you help companies tell their story and capture their strategy. And in my dorm room at University of Connecticut, I started a company called Digital Surgeons, which um, has been around for about 20 years now. Um, I'm the chief creative officer of that and one of the co-founders. And I get to work with really awesome people all over the world, uh, both on my team and on my clients' teams that we exist to do one thing, which is help people transform their businesses through storytelling and branding. And it's been a really, really fun ride. It's afforded me a lot of fun opportunities. I've got to work with some incredible people. I've got to invest in some incredible tech companies as an angel investor. Um, and it's also afforded me the ability to start a lot of other businesses. So I've started a couple of additional businesses that I've either invested in or operated um, one of which is a creative co-working space called district here in New Haven, Connecticut about a mile away from Yale University, which you might have heard of. And, you know, that's what brings me here today. And I, and my sort of core belief, John, is that I believe that creativity and curiosity are broken. I think that they're broken in the world and it's broken in business. And I think that when we lead and we live more creative lives, I believe that we live more fulfilled lives. And what's really interesting is for all the data nerds out there, there's been a lot of studies out there that companies that have design and creativity embedded in their C-suite and in the DNA of the company tend to outperform significantly. One of the stats I love the most is companies that have invested in design and human-centered design in their leadership team and in their product have seen over 200% return on investment above and beyond the S&P 500 index. So just a couple of different key stats is like when you invest in design, when you invest in creativity as an organization, you have happier, more fulfilled, more successful teams and people. And it, design is good for your bottom line. Absolutely. It allows people to express themselves. So now I found a lot of interesting things here that you said now, especially about the creativity part and the curiosity. It's funny because a lot of people think that they're creative, like that creative still exists, but you're absolutely right. There is that fundamental part of it that's missing. Yeah. And the curiosity, I think society in itself has destroyed the curiosity part. And here's what I mean. We become so friggin' sensitive and so, uh, oh my God, this is wrong, that's wrong, and oh no, I'm offended. And we become so into that stupidity, as I'll call it, that uh, people may be curious, but they don't allow themselves to tap into it out of fear what people might think because their curiosity might make them ask something that's offensive. So there's too much censorship and there's too much tippy-toeing and not enough authenticity. Everyone talks about that word. Everyone says you got to be authentic. But reality is if you're tippy-toeing and you're not seeing your true thoughts and you're not really communicating and you're not showing your sense of curiosity, how authentic are you really? 
So I think I want to unpack that for a second, if we could, John, because I think, absolutely. So there's a part of me that wants to, you know, go to war on the woke police, right? And, and <laughs> but but I think when I stop for a moment and I follow my own principles of being curious, what I realize is that our brains have been completely rewired, right? If we think of ourselves as a species, it used to be fight or flight right? We used to have yep. to run from the saber-toothed tiger and not get killed. None of us know what that world's like because it's been thousands of years, right? But what I think is interesting is we're so addicted to the dopamine rush and the serotonin rush and the endorphin rush that you know these little rectangles in our pocket give us every single day that I think what that does is it lets it, it makes it very easy for the brain to be triggered. So I think as a result of it, the way that people process information now, the way that people process emotions now, the way that people are communicating now, I think has been drastically changed as a result of technology. And I actually think in some cases we've gone backwards and I think it's the the opposite of evolution. It's, it's sort of going backwards. So I think that what I've found is when I get over myself and the annoyed, angry side of myself where people are just getting too sensitive, I think people deeply care about what people think. And I know myself, I, I've run into that a lot. You know, I've, by some people's standards, I'm very successful, but by my, but my, by my own standards, I have imposter syndrome. You know, I'm like, do I belong here? You know, when I'm on a stage of 400 people and, and getting paid to do a talk, I'm like, you know, do I deserve to be here? Am I like, am I good enough? Like whatever. And I've been doing this for 20 years. So you have to understand, I think there's a lot of people right now that are hurt, that are lonely, that are struggling with mental health issues. And I don't think that they have a means to communicate. So I think that you're absolutely right. They're afraid that they're going to be judged. They're afraid that they're going to get canceled. They're afraid that something's going to happen. So what ends up happening is that they start tiptoeing and they start tiptoeing because they don't downside to being their hundred percent true selves is overcome with the fear and the risk of being hurt. So I think that that's something that I've, and I, and I'll be honest, John, like two years ago, you and I would be like, really like hemming it up on this on this topic. Now that I have a son, now that I have a kid, what I've realized looking at the world differently, trying to see it through his eyes, again, he's only two, but I'm realizing like just truly how different the world is today than it was when I was a kid. You know, I'm an 80s baby, right? So I think that when I was growing up, you know, it's like my dad would, you know, tell me like, you know, stop being uh he might say something to me and yeah, just, yeah, you know, yeah. Just, I, just get it or whatever and then we'd go and we'd watch a rocky movie and you know we'd pull it together right um nowadays if i was to try to employ those tactics i think my my teams and my friends would say you're being toxic masculinity and that's terrible and and you know god forbid i put that on social media i probably would get you know flamed and abused and and whatnot and i'd be a meme but yeah, I just wanted to take a second to kind of cover that because I think that back to curiosity, most people's behavior is a projection of themselves and how they're feeling and not to get all like therapy on you. But I think that if we look at that and we unpack that and we follow that curiosity thread, I think what you can realize is that when you get past the hurt and you keep being curious, I think that you can find that people will show up very differently when you give them the opportunity to. But I don't think that people have been given enough opportunities today to be their true selves without being judged, scrutinized, or penalized for doing that. Right. And this is where I wanted to go with that. I think we've gotten into an era where you almost have to give people permission to be themselves. Yes. I completely agree with you. Yeah. Now, the last point I'm going to make about this woke society, I think we are in a recession, though no one's calling it. Mm -hmm. And I think we've been in it for a while. I think, I mean, there's hints that we might not get into it, but obviously the, the long 
story short, is that uh, that uh, skepticism, no, that optimistic view that we might not isn't there anymore. I believe that we're in it. And I believe you see it with the layoffs. You see everything that's going on. Now, regardless of that, where I'm going with this is that I believe that a lot of people are about to get humbled. And what happens is that woke is going to become wake. And beyond that, where I find the shame in this to make my last point Mm. is not, I agree with everything you said, 100%, right? Again, it's coming from their perspective. They're facing a different world than we grew up in. Yeah. The shame of the matter is what caused all this, what caused all this beatdown, what caused all these feelings and emotions is really a small group of people that we call woke. And it's a small, small society. But what happens is they're shouting out loud, shouting out so loud that everyone's hearing them. And it's that same thing that they don't want others to do is the same damn thing that they're doing that is causing or has caused all this outlook. Yeah. Well, if it, if it bleeds, it leads, right? I mean, like one of the things that, that we have to think about, right, is that if you look at social media, I mean, just, just take Yelp or like a review site, right? People are way more likely to be loud in a negative fashion than a positive fashion. So like what's interesting is like when you look at something, you know, again, if it's like journalists, right? If it bleeds, it leads. Like the more sensational the headline. And I think what we have to do is we have to look at there's a couple of things that's happening, right? Like, like you're in real estate, you're in a lot of the areas, so you understand the economy. I think the 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 job of an economist and what the economists need to look at, you know, when I went to school, we had macroeconomics and microeconomics, and I think that those things are blurring together in a very, very big way. So a good example is big tech companies, which typically would pay the highest salaries and give incredible amounts of generous equity, would get the best talent because obviously people were highly rewarded and motivated to go work for these game-changing things. So what's interesting is now when you're making five, $600,000 a year writing code, instead of making $80,000 a year writing code, and you know that if you can ride this out for a few years, the company will go public and you'll become you know, a young millionaire, that might be really inspiring and rewarding to you. But yeah. what we have to understand is that those companies typically were built on, on venture capital models where they were incentivized to burn cash, be not profitable, and ultimately drive the inflection growth rate and the scale and scale, 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 speed, speed, speed. So their incentives were based on that. So I think what's really interesting is that to your point, people are going to absolutely get humbled. I think they're going to get humbled because what's what's happened now is with hyperinflation, with all the things that you're well aware of, probably more than I am, is what's happening now is that the incentive structures are different. People are saying now you have to run healthy companies and healthy companies are profitable, not, not burning cash and losing money every single month with crazy burn rates. So what that basically means is that you're going to see a shift in in Silicon Valley culture. You're going to see a shift in real estate culture. People believe that they can do more with less now in remote economies. So you have all these different industries, I think, that are under siege because while the deep down human behavior hasn't changed, the incentive structures has. So I think that what's interesting is if you were to look at the economy through an economist's lens and we look at things like, you know, like GDP and we look at, you know, inflation and we look at the Federal Reserve rates and we look at um, the uh, unemployment rates and some of the standard things that like anybody doing a Google search can figure out themselves. Right. But what's interesting is the incentive structures have happened. So if you came up, you know, making a half a million dollar a year, half a million dollars a year right out of school, um, you know, eating $18 a day avocado toast and, you know, $9 a day CBD infused coffees at the coffee shop down the street for you to have to go back to a world where you're going to have to work 50, 60 hours a week and make a third or a fourth or a 10th of that. Or more importantly, now you've got all these AI technologies happening and people are saying they, they want more, more, more and with less, less, less. I think that creates a big shift in behavior. So I think for me, you're absolutely right. I like to think that I was 
blessed in that I was humbled from a very young age where I was taught the value of a dollar. I grew up in a middle-class uh, family. And while I would be the first to tell you, like as a white guy, I obviously had a lot more privilege than a lot of other people. However, I knew the value of a dollar and I knew what it was like to go to school with not wearing Nikes or not wearing name brand clothes. I was lucky enough to have clothes. I was lucky enough to never, never go hungry without a meal. So I want to, I want to take a second to just honor my privilege. But at the same time, like I still to this day know the value of a dollar and I try to put my employees before myself and all the companies I have. But I think that that's why I want to just take a moment, John, because I think that you're absolutely right. And you and I, I think share a lot of similar beliefs. I think the challenge that I would posit is that we have to get to the core of what drives people. And I think if we can get to the core of what drives people, then I think we can get off this Instagram hamster wheel that people are living <laughs> on where they think that they're going to make one post on content, go viral on TikTok and be making Kim Kardashian rates. I think that I dream of a day where we get more transparent and open and people realize that if they want to be at the Kim Kardashian level, they got to do what she does, which is works 80 hours a week which is puts in the hustle, which is deals with the publicists and deals with the scrutiny of being in the news and getting her name and her family's name dragged through things. She earned everything that she got. And I think I use that as an example, using her as a metaphor or as a trope. Yeah. This is not about Kim Kardashian, but this is about, you got to put the time and the effort in and you got to put the reps in to get to where you want to get to. And I think that people being drunk off of all the things that you're talking about, I think is just not going to help in the future. No, not at all. Absolutely right. You said it right there, which brings up the, uh, you know, the whole point. We grew up in a different era, right? I grew up, I used to be in the marketing business before I got into all this. I'm sorry to hear that. What? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. As someone who's been in marketing, I'm sorry to hear that. I wouldn't wish it on my enemy. Except back, yeah, exactly. I, I'm, and look, and let's be honest, back then, we all called it marketing, but uh, we helped other people do more advertising. And here's what I mean by that. Back in the day, your brand didn't matter as much as your message and the message had to be 50% off, 25% off, you know, $399, $499 and you would have lineups around the building and that's really all that mattered. It didn't matter what your name was, didn't matter what your brand was, unless you were luxurious and that changes everything I just said. But there was fewer luxurious people and I don't mean people calling themselves luxurious, I mean few, fewer actual luxurious brands and more people competing in the space of $399, $499, 50% off, 25% off, and stuff like that. And that sold a lot of product. I mean, in fact, that's actually what built my, built my business initially. I went from basically, as metaphorically speaking, a starving artist to making eight figures a year based on that premise. And uh, where I'm going with this is the fact that using those same tactics today will get you zero. You might get lucky if you get one call using the same tactics. Things have changed. Now, some of it has changed for the better. Some of it, not so much. Now, why that, uh, why one of the things that changes, the reason that 50% off doesn't work is because those 50% offs used to literally be a sale. You would see them twice a year. That would be it. Where today, if it's not 50% off, it'll be 40% off next week. And if it's not 40% off next week, come back. The 50% off will return in two weeks. And then if it doesn't, it'll be 60% off. Hold on. Nobody's buying. They're going to make it 80% off. Oh, there's going to be a clearance sale. It's going to be almost free. And that's really the stupidity of today. And that's why those things don't work. But people want to connect to their product. I mean, to the businesses they're buying from. And that's why personal branding has come in. And that's why, like, 
look, let's be honest. You've heard of Gary Vee. You've heard of all these uh, CEOs and stuff and all that. Once upon a time, those CEO names were just names of, you know, that you never really talked about. Mm -hmm. Now today, those are the names that build or break the company because people want to uh, relate to that person. Yeah. I mean, it's not anybody you're going to deal with. You're not going to walk into uh, to Apple and uh, say, hey, I'm here to see Tim Cook. I want to buy an iPhone. That's not going to happen. Right. But somehow that's what we relate to. Yeah, I think I think that I mean, I have a lot. I don't know if there's a question in there or not, but I I have a lot of thoughts on that um, that I'm happy to respond to, depending on the question. Well, yeah, there was a question, but you can get into the thoughts if you want first and I'll ask you my question. No, fire the question away. Yeah, my question was going to be is is that we have transformed a a lot along the way. And even the COVID-19 shutdown has changed business in every way. So how was your business today compared to where it was? Like, what was your involve you know the evolve part of your business from when you started to today yeah so i think that so so i for the audience here i've i have a number of different businesses i have service businesses i have physical businesses um i mentioned this earlier but you know one of my businesses is a co-working space so obviously the before and after of that with covid what is is tremendously different i'd say before you know we were we were booming during covid it was like you know crushing um, and then thank God, because of the community that we've built, which we'll talk about community, I'm sure a bunch today, John, right? But because of the community we built and because there's been a shift in people's mental model for how they think about real estate, having a co-working space that we own the asset, unlike we work who leases it, um, has been really powerful for us. So we, we have a wait list right now in our co-working space. Um, we've expanded it twice and um, it's going well. So I would say to answer your original question, COVID I think has really brought about an acceleration of change and pace in, in people's lives and companies. I think it's had a lot of people wake up to what is their purpose? What are they doing? I think it's triggered a lot of mental health things that I think we're going to see the ripple effects for for the next 20, 30 years to be candid in terms of how that affects generations today and generations in the future. I think how we communicate, how we connect, how we gather as a society is going to be forever changed um, because of that pandemic, because of the loneliness and languishing and uh, fear that came about from it, which is a whole different conversation. But to answer your question, all of my businesses have evolved. They've evolved because what we've realized is that the way we bring people together, you know, I have this big, great, incredible office with for most of my companies. And I'd say 20, 30% of the staff is in the office on any given day. Um, we have a, we've gone completely flex and remote so people can work for where you know, if they want to work on a beach in Talon or they want to work in our office, we allow that. Um, all that we ask is that there's some agreements in terms of how we're going to communicate, you know, how we're going to respect one another, how we're going to get our work done. But I think that what we've also realized is a lot of people are craving that in-person connection. They're craving that, you know, that whiteboarding session. And as much as we use tools like Miro and have every tool under the sun for being able to digitally collaborate, there's just something special about being in the room with you. I have a podcast, John, that we record where I interview breakthrough business leaders called Forward Obsessed. And we purposely will not interview people remotely like we're interviewing right now. Because I can say as much as I'm feeling connected to you in this conversation and our shared beliefs, if you and I were in the room right now, I'd be feeling your physical presence, right? Like I'd be looking you in your eyes, not in this in this camera over here. And the mirror neurons in our eyes would be building empathy for one another. We would probably have talked a few minutes and gotten to know each other a bit more about our backgrounds before we jump right into this podcast. I share that with the audience because to answer your question, COVID has accelerated the importance of human connection and it's accelerated 
the things that people look for in a business or brand. And while everybody wants a good value or a good deal, what people want is fast and cheap, right? Like what did, look, look what Uber just rolled out this past week, right? If you don't like returning packages, they'll charge you a fee and they'll pick up your packages and return them now. Game changer for them because now more people are going to sign up for Uber premium and Uber Eats and all the other things that they offer. And now you're getting alcohol and pharmaceuticals and pretty soon cannabis and whatever else you want from these services, right? No differently than when was the last time you ordered something on an e-commerce website and you were okay waiting two weeks for it? I remember a time you used to have to order in a catalog, you know, wait six weeks for something. Now, if I don't get it the same day or the next day, my expectations are rewired, right? I want to watch, when I want to watch the Netflix series, I want to watch the whole season. I want to binge it in one night. I don't want to have to wait for appointment viewing every Friday. So I think that behaviors have changed with the behaviors that have changed, the expectations have changed. And I think that in a lot of cases, what that's meant for us is that how we service our customers, whether it's a product company or a service company or a physical space, how we service them, when we service them, where we service them, and how we use that customer feedback loop has forever changed. But if I had to go back 10 years, John, what I would tell you is the principles are all the same. What's different is now how we do it. I absolutely agree with you on that. And I found that fascinating about how you mentioned uh, our expectations, right? Because we would wait two weeks and stuff. And you know what? I'm not going to lie. Some of today's uh, premises actually suit my personality a bit, better, a bit better than it used to. I'm a very impatient person. Um, really impatient. I mean, sometimes to the point that sometimes it really helped me. Some of my successes have come because I'm that impatient, but some of my uh, nuances or uh, hindrance has come as a result of that impatience. Now, the funny story I'm going to bring up here is that I needed memory cards for my camera. And I'll give you an example. I went to order on Amazon and the card that I order, I always order the uh, same type of card because I've got one of those fancy cameras, whatever, that have those faster speed cards that it can you know, handle and all that. And I'm very impatient. Amazon was on back order in the way, meaning that it's going to take six days. Well, I looked up Henry's. Henry's had it the same day. I left my house, got, went to pick it up. I would have normally, for something like that, I would have never left the house to get it. I, I don't think it's worth leaving the house to drive so I can get a $100 memory card. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's just a waste of time. But because I'm so friggin' impatient and I thought, I'm not waiting five days, even though, keep in mind, my cameras have dual slots for memory cards, and I still had a memory card in one of the slots, so it's still recording. It really didn't matter. Uh, I just used the second one as a backup, but because I wanted the backup today, I left the house to get it. And that's just, you know, it's that same behavior you were just talking about. Yeah. No, I love that. And what I would say is, you know, I'd want to unpack your impatience because, you know, is it that the companies that you do business with don't understand your expectations, or is it because they haven't done a good enough job sharing their expectations? You know, like if they said, you know, hey, this memory card is um, is backordered, you know, do you would you be willing to pay less money for it later or more money for it right now? And you probably had something you needed to do that you needed to record and you're like, I want it and I want it right now and I'm willing to pay more of a premium. No differently than when Uber surge pricing goes up and if, it, if it's raining in the middle of New York City and I'm between meetings, I'll pay almost anything for a car to show up and for me to jump in it so I don't have to walk through the pouring rain, get soaking wet and smell like you know New York City um, just to wait for a, a taxi or something. So I think the question I would I would sort of ask you is like, is it your expectations have not been met or is it that 
genuinely you're just irrationally impatient. I'm irrationally impatient. As a child, I was like that. I was uh, obnoxious. You know, I was so impatient. Um, I, I've, it's one of those things. I'm like one of those old school guys that when I said, hey, is the website done? Or when can you get the site done? I really meant, why isn't it already done? Right, right, right. And uh, I'm just, that's just who I've been. But I'm very energetic. I'm usually lively. I'm like all over the place and like, you know, bouncing off the walls. And that's how, I, how I've always been. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not exactly going to go through a you know, temper tantrum or a rage because, oh, my God, I got to wait a day. But uh, it's one of those things that uh, if you told me you can do something for me for 500 bucks, but it's going to take a week or tell me $900 and you'll have it tomorrow morning, I would pick the $900. Yeah, it was one of those things. I might resent it in the way, not resent you, resent myself, because I'll take it internally, going, "What the hell's wrong with me?" But because I, again, it's part of excitement. I get excited, and by the time what happens is, and I'll give you an example. This is a real insight in my personality. Um, I'm so excited that what will end up happening is that uh, I would, would if you told me it'll take five days, I may agree to it. And I may say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah," and because then I, I'm trying to be reasonable. But what ends up happening is I get excited and I'm still on the hunt. So here you are working on my stuff in the background. I might actually order from somebody else at the same time. First person to get it done is the one I'm going to go with. I'll pay both of you. I don't, I don't care. But I'm going to go with the one that's first. Right? It's just who I am. I want things right away. Sooner the better. And, and uh, I'm more worried about time than I'm worried about price. Yeah. But again, that is exactly the same thing that led to my success. I totally agree. When I... What, well, what I would hear is that you're more focused on value than you are on price. And what, what value is to you is speed. So I think for some people, like what value is, is a good, a good example is I have a friend of mine who makes custom furniture and he does it for like celebrities and whatever. And he charges, you know, 50, 60, $70,000 for a piece of furniture that you could buy a similar utility piece of furniture at a local furniture store for, you know, 500 bucks, a thousand bucks, whatever, you know, probably less, right? Um, what his customers value is the fact that every piece is a one of a kind piece, right? What his customers value is the fact that when they have one of his pieces, in their living room or in their home, they get to brag about it, right? So in many cases, his customers are people who have high disposable income and really value that unique non-commodity approach to things, right? But if I was to look at one of those things and say like, there's no possible way that I would spend, and I can afford to, but there's no possible way I would spend $50,000 on, on one of his pieces of furniture because for me, I just don't value that enough. But um, make it a piece of technology, when Apple run, launches their newest, latest, greatest computer, I'm the first person to be on the pre-order list, right? I've actually got someone at Apple that calls me and says, hey, Pete, we're about to drop these. Should I put your name on this, right? And I'll pay whatever price they offer because technology is my thing. But when it comes to like- 100%. Standing in line and, and waiting to for, for something or, you know, waiting a week or two, I'm, you know, again, it's, I think knowing what people value is super important. I, I love that you shared that with us, John, because I think it's, you know who you are. And I think there's something special about that, right? It's like, that was the one thing is like, I learned a long time ago that boundaries are the things that make or break people. Yeah. And I'm terrible at boundaries. I'm working on it. I'm getting better at it. I'm realizing now that there's new constraints in my life that weren't there before. Like this little kid that's tugging at me or just as I'm getting older, you know, I can't do the kinds of things I used to when I was 22 anymore. But I think it's interesting that you know yourself and I'm sure you communicate that to all your vendors. Like, hey, look, I am really focused on getting this thing out the door at this speed, at this thing. And I'm willing to I'm willing to wiggle on price. I'm willing to wiggle maybe even a little bit on quality because these are the things that matter to me right now. Because if I can get my thing to market 
five days or two days faster than somebody else, I can outperform them or I can win. And you strike me as the kind of person that like, you like to win the race, no matter what the race is. Always, always at any cost. It's, um, yeah, it's interesting that way. Now, I, I, again, I'm very, I do everything very intentionally. Like, uh, even like prime example, when I print business cards, I, it will take me six print runs by the time I get the one that I actually keep. And that has to do with my impatience. And sometimes it has to do with my, uh, I'll have an idea and just say there's a conference on Friday. Today is Thursday. So I got 24 hours for that conference. Well, what will happen is that, uh, we'll be in a design process. The card will come in. It'll look decent, not decent enough, not the way I want it to be, but you know what? I need it for tomorrow. Don't give a shit. Just go to print. Oh, but that's a hundred bucks. I go, I don't care. I just go over print. I need it now. Right. So I go to print, I get it. So now I have those cards at the convention that I'm going to as an example. And then I'll do that. Now, when I get back, I'll go to fix it. Right. And, and uh, I, as long as it has the right information, that's the most important part. And so what happens, I'll go to fix it then. And then I'll adjust and adjust and adjust. By the time I actually end up settling with one, I, I, like I said, I've printed it six times. Yeah. And uh, and then at that point in time, I tend to keep it for a while. But then I've got five boxes that I throw out. Um. <laughs> my goal, and my my goal, if I was if if I was in a situation, I'm, I'm not anymore. But if I was in a situation where I was that printing company or whatever, I would basically say, okay, John's the kind of person that's really focused on minimum viable product, which means like speed to market. Um, and I would help to understand how do I make the maximum valuable product for John. And ultimately what that might, re what you might realize is that's not a business card at all. It's actually an entirely di digital solution for John that lets him connect with people at the conference tomorrow. So I think what's interesting is I love your approach. I think it reminds me a lot of Eric Ries lean startup method, which is this idea of like, what's the least amount of work that I can do the fastest to be able to prove and validate and solve a problem. And then how do I over time iterate on that to get to the level of perfection and prowess that I want? But it's about speed and iteration and velocity. So I, I love the way that you think. I think it's um, what's the most valuable thing that you said is you were super clear about who you are and what you're looking for. And I think that's all I can ever ask for in my clients, my teammates is like, tell me who you are. And it's like, it's like the old phrases, like when someone tells you who they are, believe them, <laughs> listen to them the first time and don't keep asking until you get the answer that you want, because ultimately what matters most is what the truth is. And you're very clear on that, right? And I think if people know that about you, whether it's a vendor, whether it's a, you know, e-commerce website, whatever it is, like John's willing to pay a premium price and he wants it first, he wants it fastest and he's willing to wait for the highest quality, but he's not willing to wait for the thing in his hand. So that's a powerful thing. And I think that like the more co companies understand CRMs, the more people build up profiles, the more they can understand how to serve their customer and what's really important to them, right? In some cases, people are chasing the next new product, the next new feature or widget when they might be wanting to focus more on their supply chain so they can get products to John much faster. Because maybe if I can get my product to John tomorrow and this other company down the street can get their product to John in two hours, well, they're going to win, you know, the early bird gets the worm. Yeah. Well, here's another thing, right? That, that, that in line with what we're talking about, everyone looks at cost. I mean, like you might look at this mouse and say, okay, well, that's a $20 mouse, right? As an example, or an $80 mouse or whatever it is. Right. But the problem is, oh, that's 80 bucks. I don't know, man. We got to wait for it to go on sale. Now I look at it and I said, who cares that it's 80 bucks? If, if the opportunities that come with that bring me that $80 value. Now, sometimes people don't realize by trying to save that $20 by waiting on a sale, you lost an opportunity cost. Now, a mouse is a bad example, but I'm just 
you know, but the point is, what if just say for whatever reason, there was a lack of mouses, you know, for computers out there and uh, you have a promo material where you're giving away mouses and there's a lack of it. Now, what happens if I'm going to a conference and I get to be in front of the right person and how we get introduced is like, I need a mouse. I need a mouse here. I got one for you. Oh, thank you. Uh, oh, I'm so-and-so. I'm so-and-so. I just made a connection because I spent that extra 20 bucks because I didn't wait a sa- for a sale. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's a, like, again, a mouse is a stupid example, but I think the principle is there. Yeah. No, I, I think it's, um, it's helpful to understand how you think for sure. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I'm all about, uh, I, I'm sure you've read this book called who, not how. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And that's what I believe in. Everybody want, you know, this, I find this is my breakdown wise why people are the ones that are usually stuck with analysis paralysis mm-hmm. and it doesn't mean that you shouldn't know your why i think that is important you shouldn't just be focused on it but most people who focus on why get stuck on that analysis stage um how is great if you want to be small because you're always going to look how do i do this well you did it great now what um you have to find who has the money to buy it who can afford your product who is your target market who is your niche? What, you know, where are you going with this product? And it always ends up with if any success always ends up with who, who's involved, even, even in staffing, right? You always have your A players, your B players and your C players. So the first question is, who's my A players? Who's my C players? Cause those are the ones I got to get rid of. And the B players, either they up their game or they're on the chopping block because they'll become C players next. Maybe it comes down to who. Maybe. Again, I'm very intentional in everything I do. Now, it took me a long time to learn this. I wasn't always this way. The impatience part, I was always. That that has never changed. I've been impatient since I was four years old or five years old, and that's only because I can remember. That's the furthest I can remember. But in terms of uh, the intentional part, and that is, that's come along the way. <laughs> awesome. Um, so I love how you said that, like how you've progressed up till now and stuff. And Again, we've all had changes, and I agree with you in terms of the whole pandemic or whatever and the closures speeding everything up. I don't think we're in a different spot that we've ever would have been. I just think that closure and everything made 10 years happen in two years, and that's my personal belief. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, COVID created a rapid digital transformation where it wasn't a nice-to-have, it was a must-have for survival. And I think that the acceleration of change and pace is something that is not going to ever slow down again. I think we're seeing that now specifically with everyone talking about all this AI stuff. I think that everyone wants things faster. I believe that to live a happier, more fulfilled life, we actually need to slow down. And I'm saying that as someone who is like the fastest thinking, fastest moving person <laughs> that I know. Um, but yeah, no, there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of changes and paces. It's definitely been a interesting conversation. I, I know, um, They've got me packed pretty tight today. I know we've only got about two more minutes left. So I'm hoping that we can get through any of the the remainder of the questions that you have. But that's been a great conversation. Yeah. The the next thing I was going to get into is uh, get your advice for aspiring entrepreneurs, people who are uh, trying to figure out what they want. They're not happy with where they are. They want to make a shift, but they're a little bit, uh, you know, hesitant. So what advice would you give that person? Yeah. I think the, the first thing that I would say is, it's a little bit contrarian to what you said earlier, which is, I think you have to understand why you do what you do and ultimately what brings you the satisfaction from it, whether that satisfaction comes from, you know, being in a place of service where you're providing hospitality for other people, whether that um, comes from the sort of dopamine rush that you get from completing the task, or whether that comes from the community that you're building, if you're an author or a speaker or something of that thing. So I think that in a lot of cases, if you're going to go out and start your own business or become an entrepreneur, 
or walk away from the thing that you're doing right now and do something differently, I think ultimately what's going to be really important for you is what is it that you're chasing? And I think that everyone's chasing something and whether that that thing that you're chasing is you have a problem in the world that you just can't stand anymore and you want to solve it because you believe that there's an underserved audience. Maybe you're that audience. Maybe somebody else has it. Um, you know, I've, I come across that a lot. I'd say that the first thing is you have to know yourself because before you can know anybody else and what you're doing, you have to know yourself. So know your limits, know your constraints, know who you are, and then figure out what problem is that you're going to solve. What I always tell people, if you're starting a new business, if it's your first business is the riches are in the niches and the more specific you can be with the problem you solve. When you're talking to one single person and you're marketing to that person and you're selling to that person and you're servicing that person, it's a lot easier to go get a million more people like that. And depending on what you do for a market, providing there's a service addressable market or a total addressable market. But in most cases, I think when you're everything to everyone, you're nothing to no one. So what I would say is first, know the problem you solve, who you solve it for. Second, figure out what makes you different and better, um, whether it's speed, whether it's quality, whether it's you know scarcity, whatever the things are that drive that. And then from there, understand that your story is your strategy and how you express it makes a big, big, big difference. And that story, that experience, that journey that you provide to your customers, whether you're selling memory cards and widgets or um, really bespoke high-end custom furniture like one of my friends, I'd say at the end of the day, you got to know who you are, you got to know who you do it for, and you got to know what problem you solve in the world. And if you can figure those things out and you know, the rest of the stuff is Googleable. What I always tell people is like through chat GPT or Google or YouTube, you can teach yourself just about anything, but what you can't teach yourself is the things that you don't know yet. And the only way to know is to go and do it. So that's what I would say just in short for like aspiring entrepreneurs, um, at the most simple level. And you know, hopefully that's helpful. All right. Two more questions. One being is going forward with everything that you've seen and all the changes that, that you've come across, where do you see yourself going in the next five years? Like what's your objective? Yeah. So my goal for myself right now is I, I'm at a point in my life where I've done pretty okay for myself and now I want to help other people. So I always say like, there's the, most people live the sort of three act life, which is, you know, first act is learning. Second act is earning. Third act is giving back. Um, and I, I think I'm sort of starting to get to a place now where I'm trying to give back. And I think ultimately one of the ways that I want to do that is a lot of the people I come across, most of my colleagues and friends are entrepreneurs. A lot of people I see are frustrated and unhappy. Um, and I think that it's because that they're not living the most creative or curious life that they can. So what I want to do is I want to start the bar really low. I want to say, you know what? I want to help a million people be more creative in their life and work. Once I get to that number and it's a million people, then I'll raise it to 10, then I'll raise it to 100 and we'll see how far I get before I, you know, expire in this world. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my big goal right now is just really helping people discover creativity and curiosity and how do you put that to work to solve problems differently in your life, whether it's building yourself a closet or building, you know, a 200 person company. And um, I've recently faced both of those uh, challenges with friends or colleagues of mine. So yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm here to do. And it's just provide things to people that I didn't have when I was first coming up is what I always say to, it's like, what did my 20 year old entrepreneur self need? And I'm trying to create systems and opportunities and communities and spaces where people have those things because I didn't have those things when I was 20 and there wasn't some guru I could get them from on YouTube when I, uh, when I was. So that's what I'd say. Fantastic. Second last question. I know I said two. The second last question is how do you know you've had a successful day? 
how do I know or how does a person know? Well, how do you know? Like, what do you consider a successful day for you? Yeah. So what I consider a successful day is when I set a set of commitments for what I was going to do in that day. And I've achieved those particular commitments. I think when I honor the boundaries. So if I say I'm going to start something and finish something on time and, and I do that, when I honor my commitments and I keep my promises, it's a successful day. I've learned over the years that You'll have more successful days than not successful days if you get really clear on what is success for you. Because I think what success for some people is, is I don't want to do anything today, but relax, or I want to get these three things done today. So I think to have a successful day, you have to first define it because what gets measured gets managed and what gets managed gets done. Love that. All right. Last but not least, for anyone watching or listening and they want to reach out to you, where would they find you? Yeah, appreciate the question. So I'm Pete Sana on just about every platform. I write a lot on Medium. It's just mediums.com uh, slash Pete Sana. I'm on Twitter X. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, my website is just PeteSena.com. And if you have a branding or a storytelling problem, you can definitely look at, up my company, Digital Surgeons. It's digitalsurgeons.com. Um, we've got some really great people there that would love to help you solve that problem. And if you're looking to just sort of figure out the things that I think are interesting. You can grab my free newsletter, which is on my website. I don't, I'm not going to try to sell you anything. Um, and that's it. Fantastic. Pete, thank you so much for being on the show. Likewise. If you like what you saw and you want to see some more, subscribe to the link below. Thanks for tuning in to the John Papaloni show.